The book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 9. Remember that Paul, or the author of Hebrews, is in a long discourse talking about the deep things of the Lord, the spiritual realities of the life in Christ that the law of Moses simply pointed to. And he's saying Jesus has come as our high priest under the order of Melchizedek in order to bring a greater reality of life in God to us. And that, he quoted in the last chapter from Jeremiah, this had been long prophesied, that this was a reality that would come long before Jesus himself even came. And so we'll pick it up in chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. This is a really neat part of scripture where Paul's saying there's a lot more here. You need to press in and study and seek the Lord and ask for revelation. And as he raises you up, he will reveal more and more. I, As I go through this, this is just my normal Bible study. Uh, and so I, I, I don't do any additional study other than <laughs> what I'm doing when I'm sitting here recording. But this was uh, unique in that where... I did start studying it yesterday after I finished my last recording and uh, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, and the Lord continues to reveal much. So, you know, what part of that I'll share, I, I don't know, but, um, but it is, these things are meant, what he's saying is there are great spiritual truths locked into these types and shadows of all the law of Moses and the Levitical priesthood, they point to something that is greater. But you have to go behind the veil to receive these things. So he says, even the first covenant did provide for worship, particular ways of worship, in an earthly place of holiness. And then he begins to describe what that tent looked like. And again, these are pictures of God's true tent, his true temple. The people of God. He says there was a holy place, and in it there was a lampstand and the bread of presence. So the, the, the light and the bread, this is a powerful thing in and of itself in the holy place. Now, this was more freely accessible. You remember, even David went in and uh, was given the bread, and he shared it with those with him, uh, which Jesus mentioned when they ate grain on the Sabbath. Uh, so you see this picture of this this bread of provision for his holy ones, those set apart for his work. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He is the one that gives us light to shine in the darkness of this world, that we become that same light, that we become that same bread, that we share the same provision as Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And he says, but deeper in, behind this, there is a, a next section called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in it was the golden altar of incense. 
the incense, you know, the prayers going up to God, and the Ark of the Covenant, which again indicates the presence of God, covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden urn covered the manna. So we've got three things in this Ark, which represents his presence in the world. The manna, the Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of Moses that he received on the, on the mountain of the covenant. All three of these things were given in dramatic ways to the people. They, if you go back, and, and I encourage you to go back and read how these each things came about. I specifically spent some time on uh, the staff. I believe it was Numbers 17. But if you also read 16 and 18, you can really see there's a lot of deep meaning. There, in 16 of Numbers, the, uh, the, the people were rebelling. So the people, and, and these were people, these were Levites, Korah's Rebellion. They were people of, that God had established to represent him, but they wanted to represent him in their own way, not following after God's way and God's order. And he had to destroy them. He had to remove them from his people. These are all illustrative of our day. Uh, and then he established Aaron in a, in a dramatic way that no one, you know, no one could doubt because Aaron's staff budded when all the heads of the other tribes and families did not. And they budded with fruit. The staff represents the sun. It's the same word in Hebrew. It represents sonship. It represents uh, authority of God. It was fruiting into ripe almonds. So it represents fruit bearing from the sonship, from this priesthood, because Aaron was the high priest. And we've seen earlier in this book a couple times, priesthood and sonship were tied together uh, by the author. Uh, that's a secret key into the deeper parts of the kingdom, that we have to grasp who we are called to be, and we have to become that in the Lord. Again, he does all the work. He places us, he appoints us, he anoints us, he empowers us. But we have to give ourselves, we have to believe and give ourselves to this purpose and this plan. And it's, I was blown away when you move on to, I think it's chapter 18 of Numbers. Um, then he immediately goes into the provision for the priesthood. Um, that he is taking care of his people who have given themselves totally to him. That they have no inheritance out in the world. He is their inheritance. They have given everything to him and he gives everything to them. They are united as much as someone in that day, in those days could be. But that's again, a picture of a people truly united to him. As Jesus spoke about it in the last supper in John, that, you know, I am in him and he is in me and we are in you and you are in us. This unity is what's called, that, that's the great promise of God. We have the tablets given to Moses to proclaim the law. And if you remember the tablets, the first time they were written by God, but the people rejected God before Moses even made it down the mountain. And he destroyed them in order to not have the covenant be enforced because they had already broken it. And he, But he went up the mountain and this time he had to do the work. It's similar if you think to Adam, Adam was given everything 
All he had to do was obey one simple rule, and he had all these promises. But he rejected them. And now we have to give ourselves a little to this work. We have to undo the rejection. We have to accept him daily that we want your promises, Lord. Jesus, we want what you did and what you're doing to count for us so that we can come where you are. And so Moses had to write the, the, the second set of tablets himself, but it was still the word of God. There was this union between God and man. And those tablets, again, were given under mighty circumstances. And those made it into this ark. In, in those ancient times, like where they would have come from in Egypt, if a king was making a great promise and proclamation to the people, he would write out on, the, on stone. You know, they had papyrus, but papyrus wasted away. But on stone, you knew it was going to be there a long time. These are the promises of God. You are my people. You live according to my rules, my law, and I will protect you and provide for you. So it's this declaration of kingship and provision from the Lord to his people. But we saw, it's mentioned multiple times in, in, by the prophets, most specifically perhaps by Jeremiah, which is who the author quoted in the last chapter, that that was the old covenant, that it would be written on stones. But that was never enough for people. The people continued to reject God. They did not live according to this way. They were not transformed. And so one day, God would write his law on our hearts. And we know Jesus came to fulfill this. The Holy Spirit is the one that activates this, that lives inside of us and gives us the law of the Spirit to the degree that we will accept him in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. And so we now bear this testimony of God not somewhere where as a religion that we practice, but as our way of life. The manna shows God's everlasting provision. Remember when the people were in the wilderness, they did not hurt for food. He provided, they were in the desert. <laughs> there was nothing. And there were like a couple million people, but he provided for them food every day. And so they didn't have to go out and achieve any great thing. They simply had to be a people of God, and he provided for them. And when the people asked for a sign like the manna from heaven that Moses gave, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. This is me that is your everlasting provision. He also said, you don't have to worry about things of the world the way the people of the world do. Simply give your life to me, live your life in me, and I will provide you all these things. Just as God did to the people in the wilderness, there was new manna each day for every single one of them. That is his promise that we're, when we are in him, when we give ourselves completely to him, he provides for our every need. He is our God and our king, and we are his people. He's more powerful than any earthly king. He's more powerful than all earthly kings. And he owns everything. And why wouldn't such a good king want to provide for our real needs? Not our every desire, because the flesh can pull us away, but our needs. And the more we live for him, the more our needs are and our desires are one and the same. God himself, his life, his wisdom, his love. All, all three of these things were given in dramatic ways to the people. And so they were great signs when they were given of the promised protection 
uh, and blessing of God with them. And yet they, they came with, uh, you know, regulations that the people live according to God, God's way. And then the people rejected him. God didn't reject the people. The people rejected him. And so he could not allow these holy things, this holy way to be profaned by a people because it is holy. It, it, it couldn't, they couldn't be with a people who rejected them. And so they were hidden away in the ark to be discovered. It's, they're, they're still available, but now they're hidden. And we're going to see as we go forth that Jesus went into this thing to make these things available. Verse 5 talks about the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And I believe they were also uh, stitched into the curtains before the, the Holy of Holies. And so where do we get, where's the first mention of cherubim? I believe it's first. Uh, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, the cherubim was left to guard the way in. So in so you see how this picture of the Holy of Holies represents the Garden of Eden. That is, as we follow Jesus back into this place, we come back into the promised land of God. We come back into the Holy of Holies. We come back into the Garden of Eden, the reality of life completely given to God in his ways and completely provided for by God. And knowing, there's nothing better than knowing God, living with God, and that's his promise for us. And that's all pictured here. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So it talks about the priestly duties here. And if you think about it, all the... All the sacrifices and offerings that were given were really for the people. Um, only the one day a year, the Day of Atonement, was, was were the people truly serving God, giving, giving to God. The other, all the others uh, took care of the people, making sure the people got together in community and worshipped God together in feast instead of living in fear because they had to give up things that they had and eat them now. Right. If you think about what was happening um, in a feast like atmosphere. So God was blessed in that, but it was a blessing for the people. The the also the priests and the Levites were taken care of by all the offerings in, in order that they could be priests and Levites. Without that, they could not have been priests and Levites and they, they could not have been a people of God without them. So all these things were really for the people. But one day a year, they entered behind the veil. The holy, the the high priest did, and made the offering to God. God didn't need a whole lot. He's he doesn't need us so much as he wants this relationship, this family, and this one day a year was all that was needed to um, to to serve him in this way. 
Everything else was really for the people, but they could not, we could not see it. The, the fallen flesh, and I don't know why Adam couldn't see it, but he couldn't. Uh, the fallen flesh, you think about Adam rejected God's way. Israel rejected God's way multiple times. I would, I would put before you Christians have rejected God's way. But God has always known this from the beginning. And he will have a people that give themselves completely to him. The scripture talks a lot about um, judgment and, and removing people. He t- so the Old Testament prophets talked about it a lot, and we can see in history it happened to Israel. Revelation talks about it as well. So if you don't see that the Old Testament was talking about end times, some of it's very clearly end times. But if you don't see, I mean, Isaiah can be confusing. What's he talking about? I was reading Isaiah 24 to 27 last night. And um, he, and it's for, you know, very clear judgment and destruction, and yet blessing for his people that give themselves to him. That Those things come together. And so, the, and also the piercing the veil really stood out to me as we're talking in Hebrews right now. Of, we're about to get into it, I think. Jesus piercing the veil, going behind the veil and making a way for us behind this veil. This veil of, uh, we'll get into this in uh, Revelation when we get there, but uh, Isaiah talks about it too. This veil in the heavenlies. He talks about judging the heavenlies and judging the earth. Well, we know that the the dark angels, Satan's kingdom, presides in that second heaven and that they're going to be thrown down. And that there's they they form this veil where we are not able to to as easily receive God because of this veil. But he says he will pierce the veil. And and we know from Revelation he's going to place those of us that make our way into this, up into these heavenlies. If you think about all the thrones that are in heaven, you know, <laughs> it's not just God and, and Jesus. And, and so there's this availability for a people completely set apart and given to him to take up this place and to truly know God and to truly be able to share God with other people and all creation. The invitation is there for us to enter the glory, and then the ark is not hidden. It is open to us. All these promises and provisions, all this blessing and life is open and available to us through Christ. And, you know, he disciplines us along the way as our way to enter holiness. Discipline is not uh, as we've said many times, um, you know, we can use the word suffering, we can use the word discipline, but we can discipline ourselves. We probably wouldn't, we might call that suffering, <laughs> we might not. But it is the process to shed the world and the ways of our flesh from us so that we can take on his glory. The righteousness of the law, the holiness of the staff, the redemption represented in the bread. So, sorry, I'm, I'm a bit rambling, but Isaiah, I think I brought it up because he, 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 you know, is one of the many prophets talking about this cleansing of a people, which means a removing of certain people. And, and so we see that Paul talks about the great falling away in the end times. Uh, Revelation talks about it in, in more prophetic type of language, but it's clearly something that must be done in order to have a purified people in order to remove the people who have rebelled in their hearts and minds. And I've talked about it recently. Um, 
some of these people just don't know. No one's offered them discipleship. They've been in dead religion. And they need to be kicked out in order to see what's true. And so that they have the opportunity to come back to the real and living way of Christ. And so this is a blessing. Some people are simply in the religion for for reasons that are not good. And they need to go and they probably won't come back. But he needs a clean and pure people. And so he offers that to us. And he will do that before the very end comes. Not that we're, again, it's always a progression, but it's very clear. The bride must make herself ready, right? There's so many scriptures you can point at too. This, this, there must be a purified people of God, mature sons, uh, a holy bride in white for when the actual Messiah comes back in the flesh. And Paul is is sharing with us here many things that point to this reality that we can, you know, really seek the Lord in. And Paul says in verse 8 that, hey, this present age does not yet enable the fullness of these promises. That was for an age to come. We are now in an age to come. We're 2,000 years later. 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh how much more will the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living god so i talked about this i think it was yesterday um and so i'm not going to go into great detail here again but i will once again focus on the fact that jesus went into the true tent Remember, I think a couple days ago, I mentioned the fact that Moses built his tabernacle or his tent based on what he saw in heaven. So his was simply a shadow or a type. Jesus went into the real thing for us and he became our sacrifice so that we can be purified in him, sanctified. 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So he's saying that this was all done for us. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the necessary blood for us so that we can have this eternal redemption in him. Everything else from Abraham, even before Abraham, but Abraham was the beginning of this people that he's speaking to. Um, 
from Abraham to Moses to everything was a type and shadow of this reality that Jesus has made available to us. 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So let me stop. That was pretty powerful. So Christ has entered into these things. He is sitting beside God as our high priest who knows everything we suffered, who gave himself for us. And we now have him there as our advocate. Before it was simply the, not that God could be swayed, uh, you know, unnecessarily by the evil one, but before it was just the evil one entering in, right? You would see in Job, the evil one going in and throwing accusations against Job um, as he does against all of us, well, now Jesus sits at his right hand saying, no, this one is mine. He is under my protection. If you walk around with that belief and understanding in your life, and you, you could take that in the wrong way and think you're somehow like bulletproof going walking in your own ways. But I'm saying, if you've truly given your life to God and you're filled with humility because you know he is everything and you are nothing without him, but that with him, Jesus himself sits at the right hand of God being your advocate and your counselor, that is a powerful thing and it makes everything else in this world just fall away. 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And not just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, Sorry, I think I added a knot in there. 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So he says this is not like the dead religion where things must be performed over and over and over. This is a new reality. If we truly enter into this life, we truly die to ourselves because Christ died for us, that we are made new in him as he is new and he is now eternally beside the Father in heaven. And we are now made new. And yes, we start as a baby and we must be transformed and disciplined and discipled up into holiness and sanctification and righteousness. But that is the path. And when we are on his path, it doesn't even really matter where we are on the path. Because we are on the path. We are giving ourselves to him and he is doing his work in us. Um I'm just going to give up something for tomorrow, but I I think at 27 minutes, I might just make today a one chapter day. Just read this last sentence again. Will appear a second time. Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So for those of us who give ourselves to him, he comes in power and might. Well, that is it for today. I I pray this is a blessing to you. God bless you.